So my first college roommate that I had may have been the most frugal person that I've ever met in my whole entire life. His name was Justin, and we roomed together in this ministry house in, um, on this campus where I went, University of Central Oklahoma, just outside the campus. And so I lived there. He's my first roommate. And he's one of the, one of the most frugal people. He, he spent um, a couple of years overseas on the mission field in China. Um, he co- took like this gap year in school. And so he came back and, man, he lived like a missionary, all right? And I'm not just talking about like sharing his faith, which he did, but he also lived very frugally. Like he knew how to live off of very little. And so this guy, like he, he had this like, is he walked into the room, it wasn't like, oh, this guy's like poor. It was like, this guy's so awesome because of how little he lives off of. You know, it kind of had just this aura about him. So he had his very first year, his very first semester of school, he lived off of like $20 a month of a grocery uh, bill because there's a miscommunication about his parents and like giving him money for groceries. Um, he went and he did all of his clothes shopping from thrift stores. This is like when thrift stores were like a big deal. And so he had like all these retro outfits that he'd walk into the room and was like, that's Justin. You know what I'm saying? His car, it was like he just went to a junkyard and got a bunch of different parts from different cars and just like put them together. And that was his car that he drove around. Um, and the, one of the things that it was just very noticeable as you came into our apartment is we had bottles, these really old bottles of like old hand soap or shampoo. They were just all over the place and it was all just completely diluted, right? So like you were doing the college guy thing where you had like, okay, we're getting really low on the dish soap. So we're just going to throw a bunch of water in it, shake it around, and then we'll see what comes of it. You know what I'm saying? Like that's kind of what our whole apartment was like. And so, I mean, you walk into the kitchen is just these old grungy bottles. You walk into the bathroom, old grungy bottles. You walk in, I mean, any room that you walked into, there was some reason to have some, un, some old grungy bottle that was in there. I promise you, it was just all over the place. Now, so I'm dating my wife, who is now my wife. We weren't married at that point. We were, we were dating, and I at least had enough self-awareness, so I, I knew, I kind of learned what it was like to live with all of this, this craziness, this mess everywhere. But I had enough self-awareness that like when chairs came over, I knew things needed to be different. You know what I'm saying? Like I had the secret stash of like hand soap and these different things that like I would pull out before she came over and I'd hide all the diluted bottles. So she, she would come over and for a little while, she had no idea that like the house looked like this before she came over. She was like, she had no idea. In some sense, like chairs without knowing it, was a form of accountability for sanitation and humanity in the life of our apartment before she came over. Well, this, more, this evening, as we're looking at this passage that Paul writes to the Philippians, we see Paul sort of serves in this similar yet more profound way of accountability. See, Paul here, rather than an accountability against like diluted bottles in a college dorm room, Paul serves as an accountability against a diluted faith. In verse one, Paul writes, in addition, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. And we're going to hit on this in that, these coming weeks, that thing we're going to hit on that in the coming weeks. But he says this, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. So in essence, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, what I'm about to share with you is something that we've covered before. We've talked about this. 
When I was with you, this is something that we went over and over and over again. But it's so important that it's no trouble for me who's sitting in a prison right now, having somebody have to literally translate exactly what I'm saying and write it down on paper that they then take to you. It's no trouble for me to write to the, write about this to you again because Paul thinks it's worth repeating. And as he repeats it, it's intended to serve as the safeguard of what they originally believed. So look, here's what I want us to do as we're just looking at this passage here tonight together. This passage has three sections to it, all right? So the, in these three sections, you're going to see that Paul issues a warning to the Philippians. Then in the second movement, you're going to see that he issues what his goal in life is. He shares that with the Philippians. And then he concludes it with a call, an invitation for us to join him in this thing that he's picked up in his life. So we're going to look at the warning. We're going to look at the goal. We're going to look at the call. We'll sprinkle in some application in there as well, and then we'll conclude. All right? So first, let's look at the warning. We see this in verses 2 through 6. So I'm going to reread it just so you can kind of be refreshed, right? So here's what it says. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. The ones who worship by the Spirit of God boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has has ground for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Now, there's a lot that's in here. So like, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Let me try to explain it here for a second, all right? So Paul is warning the Philippians about this group that's called the Judaizers, all right? There's a whole book that, or a whole letter that Paul has written based off of this, this group, Um, You can read it. It's the book of Galatians. It's all about just this false teaching that these Judaizers have brought into these churches that Paul has built up. So these Judaizers, they went around and they were intruding where they weren't wanted. That's why Paul writes that they're dogs. At this time, dogs weren't like these family little friends that you had in your homes. No, they were like feral creatures that you didn't want coming, snooping around. They would intrude in places that you didn't want them to intrude. And so they would come in, they would intrude on these churches that Paul had gone in, he'd shared the faith, people would respond to the goodness of the gospel, and then they would come in and teach that to be a real Christian, Not like a JV Christian, but to be a real Christian, that you had to become a ritual Jew, meaning that you had to adhere to all their dietary laws, and you had to adhere to all the Jewish customs, that you had to be circumcised, that this is like the physical mark of being a ritual Jew. That's why he writes that they were mutilators of the flesh. Let the hearer understand. Amen. In essence, the Judaizers message was that you need Jesus. They would, they would preach Jesus. They would share that you needed Jesus, but you also needed a resume. It wasn't just Jesus, but you needed all these other things that came along with ritual Judaism that you needed to adhere, that you needed to practice, that you need to have the mark of this Jewish faith on your body in order for you to be and to have right relationship 
with God. So resume is basically like an argument for why you should be accepted, right? Like we all had to make them to get into college. We all had to make them to try to apply for a job. You're listing out all of your credentials. Hey, this is why you should accept me. This is my argument for why I should be a part of your school. This is my argument for why I should get this position that was listed online. This is my argument for acceptance. And these Judaizers, they put a lot of confidence in their resumes. But Paul refutes this. That's why he he goes about enlisting off all these different credentials in this passage. He's listing off his resume. Paul is basically saying, hey, if if you want to make a big deal about your resume, look, you can't beat mine. Mine is better than yours. So he says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. This is the, the actual day that the Bible tells the Israelites that they needed to go and be circumcised after they're born. The tribe of Benjamin. This is where the first king of Israel came from. Most people didn't know which tribe that they were a part of, but Paul knew, and he, wasn't, he didn't just know which tribe he came from. He actually knew which tribe, and it was where the first king of Israel came from. And so he's like, hey, I came from the right family. Then he says, I was a Pharisee. This is the religious elite. Now, this doesn't carry a lot of weight with it today, but back at this point in time, this was a person that made it. They knew all of the first five books of the Bible. They, they knew what it looked like. They had a lot of money. They had reputation. They had prestige. A Pharisee was a big deal. And then he says, obedience to God's law, I was blameless. Basically, I was a great rule keeper. I was, I was the highest of citizens. Paul's saying, you can't beat my resume. But look, we read this. The Philippians probably are reading this, and we're like, who cares? Right? Like, you look at all these credentials, and it's like, okay. Like, why, why, I mean, this is, this doesn't feel like a big deal to me. These, these things that you list off, who cares? I mean, I don't care that you had the procedure on the right day. You know what I'm saying? I I don't care that you came from the right family. So you know a lot about the Bible, and you had a lot of ambition, and you kept all the rules. All right. If, If Paul were standing here, and we were kind of listing these off, and he was hearing this response, he'd be like, yeah, that's the point. That's the point of what I'm trying to get across. Anytime, what he's trying to basically say is, look, anytime that you add to Jesus, you dilute the gospel. That's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. It loses its substance and its power. That's why Paul writes that we are the circumcision. What he's basically saying is, look, we are the real followers of Jesus. We're the real followers of God. It's not these people that are coming in and trying to infiltrate your church and try to tell you that it's Jesus plus something, your resume, and all these different things that you need to perform and all these things that you need to add to your life. He's saying, no, they're not the real circumcision. They're not the ones with the real mark of God on them. We are. It gives you a list of reasons for why that they are the real followers of God. He says, we're the real mark because we worship by the spirit of God. We we no longer have to adhere to this sacrificial system and travel to specific places in order for us to worship God. No, we we have the spirit of God who lives inside of us. So we we can worship God wherever we are. Then he says, that we're the ones that boast in Jesus and we don't boast in our 
moral perfection. We don't boast in the families that we come from. We don't have this resume that we're boasting in. Instead, we boast in Jesus and what he's done. Their hope of salvation rests in the physical marks that happen to Christ's body, not the physical marks that happen on their own body. Paul's saying, we're the circumcision if these are the things that you hope in. That you have the spirit of God, that you boast in Jesus, not anything that you've done. That there's no confidence in your flesh. It's completely confidence in what Jesus has done. This is the real mark of Christianity. So Paul, in essence, what he's saying is like, don't add to Jesus. Don't. It's the beauty of the gospel. This fact that Jesus has done everything for you. He's not requiring anything of you before you come to God and have a right relationship with him. He's saying, no, Jesus has done all of that for you. So look, don't add to Jesus. It only ruins the substance of the gospel. Those who are the real circumcision are the ones that trust in Christ and his works only, not in Jesus, plus a resume. That's what Paul is communicating to the Philippians. Now, look, this isn't just a warning for him. It's also a warning for us. Look, the details may be dated, all right? This resume that Paul has just listed off, we look at it and it's like, we can discard that. It doesn't seem like it relates to us all that much, but the warning is just as relevant. One of the age-old tactics of the evil one is to lure Christians into the belief that Jesus isn't enough. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, calls it Christianity and. In the screw tape letters, which is where you find this, it's this alternate reality where you kind of get this perspective from a demon's perspective. So you have this, this experienced demon screw tape, and he's teaching his protege, Wormwood, this timeless tactic of how to attack Christians. And what the idea is, is that you keep a Christian in the state of mind that it can't be as simple as faith and belief in Jesus. And so what their goal is, is the strategy is to foster this temptation to add something else to our faith in Jesus and the gospel, which is where you get this idea of Christianity and that you lull a Christian to sleep enough or that you find a, a nick or a cranny or a spot in their life where you can kind of widget your way in and say, is, really, is Jesus really enough? I mean, Jesus, he gets your foot in the door, but isn't it this? And look, we all deal with this. All right, here's some examples, all right? This is why you see like Christianity and then like success. And what I'm talking about is like success of like what you do for Jesus. So like what we're doing right here, like a church plant that you would like sell your home, that you quit your job, that you move to a new place to help start a new church. It's like, well, yes, Jesus, but like, look what I've also done for God. Look at the things that I've, I've done. I've given up a lot for God, for what he has done for me, I, I've also given some in return. So surely he's going to be happy with me. You also have like Christianity and um, political action, right? Like you, you get in, you have social awareness that you have a sense that I'm going to get in. I'm going to try to make it difference, whether it be my vote or going to, to do some marches or whatever it is. Like 
I, these things, they matter, and they do. Look, a lot of these social things, they do matter, but we add to the gospel often with these certain things, with political action. For some of us, it's like Christianity and family. Like I'm building up a family that I have kids that I'm teaching them the gospel and I'm, I'm building up a home that the, the aroma of our house is this gospel of grace. As people come in, like you, you, you have this aura about you of like it's Jesus, but like also look how good I'm following him by creating a family that loves him. You have things like Christianity and social status, or you have Christianity and spiritual formation. You have Christianity and self-realization. Look, we have so many things that you can fill in the blank because this is something that is very relevant still to us. It's a warning that we still need to hear. When Paul says, look out, he's not just speaking to the Philippians. He's also speaking to us. So look, the question for us, all right, here's my question, is like, What's your additional thing? What's the thing that tempts you to add to Christianity or add to Jesus? What are your resume builders? All right, here's some, so I was wrestling with this in my own life this past week. So here's a couple of questions. If you're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have a good tap on like what that would be in my life. Here's a couple of questions that can help you try to like dissect and really dig and think through and wrestle what this might be, all right? So here's the first one. What do I want to be known for? What do I want to be known for? Like when people hear my name, what do I want them to associate it with? What basically in essence like what gets you excited? What's the thing that like drives you? The thing like, I want people to know that I've done this. Here's the second question, all right? It's kind of the, the flip of this. When do I have a hard time receiving forgiveness? Or like when I have done something wrong, when is it really hard for me to receive forgiveness from somebody else because I have built up such a big thing about myself in terms of this, that if I know that I failed somebody in this regard, it's going to be really hard for me to receive forgiveness. Like, you are a person that's very stable, and you've been very dependent, but you've dropped the ball with somebody. And it's just, like, there's no excuse. You just dropped the ball. You didn't follow through with the commitment or the promise that you gave, and you are just beating yourself up about it. That's what I'm talking about here. Like, what are, where is the place that you have a really hard receiving forgiveness if you fail at it? You know what I'm saying? In essence, like, what I'm trying to get you to see is, like, you need to be aware of what gets you really excited, but also what gets you really upset. These are indicators that these may be the resume builders that you have in your life, the Christianity and the Jesus plus, these may be the things that you're adding to faith in Christ. And it's a wrestle for us. Now look, here's the thing, all right? Christianity and is actually a Christless Christianity because it's a diluted faith. You lose the substance and the worth and the goodness of the gospel. So look, what Paul is heeding here is something that we, it, what he's the warning he's giving us is a warning we need to adhere in our life. Look, we don't boast in anything else besides Jesus. 
There's no other thing that we place confidence in our own flesh or our own works, the only, the places that we come, the family that we come from. Like we, all these blanks that could be Christianity and for your life. We don't place our confidence in that because it dilutes the faith. What Jesus, what Paul is saying is don't add to Jesus. Keep the substance and the beauty and the worth of the gospel. Don't add to it. And it's a warning that we need to adhere in our own life. Now, Paul builds on this warning and conversely lays out his life goal in verses um, 7 through 11. We see it specifically in verse 10. So I'm going to reread it again, refresh our minds, and we'll dive back in, all right? He says this, but everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him in the power, this is the goal, right? My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So look, what Paul is just basically worked through is like, hey, all the things that I used to put a lot of my worth in, all the things that I used to really base my life upon, the things that I did want to be known for, I've counted all as loss for knowing Jesus. Paul is basically a real life example for those parables that Jesus gives of the person that went and found the hidden treasure in the field and sold all that they had in order to gain the field. He's also the one that's a real life example of the person that found the priceless pearl and then he goes and sells all of his possessions in order to get the pearl. Paul is that merchant. He is the guy that was wandering in the field and stumbled upon this hidden treasure and then went and sold all that he had. He's basically saying, I gave up all these things that I built my life on because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord. Paul has found Jesus and the, all that he once valued, it's lost its worth in view of knowing Jesus, where he came from, the family that he came from, nothing. What he accomplished, the zeal and ambition that he had, it was worthless to him now. All that he had learned, all the things that he had memorized, he's saying it doesn't matter anymore. He's saying his morality and the rule keeping, it is pointless. He says it's all dung. This is literally the closest that you can get in the Bible to cursing. It's like that point in that life, in your life, like when you have something that you're trying to get across and you're very passionate about it and you don't know how to get it across without cursing, you're like, I, I need a word. You know what I'm saying? That's what Paul is doing here. He's like, I. I don't care about any of it anymore. I've found the one thing, the most valuable thing in the whole entire world. And all that I had built my life upon at this point in time, I, I counted as loss. I don't even have the right word for it. Without sinning before God and cursing, I don't have enough of a word to share exactly what I feel about all this stuff. It doesn't mean anything to me anymore. That's what Paul is saying here. I don't trust in any of these things anymore. My only hope rests with Christ now, where he came from, which is the right hand of God, how he obeyed, 
Not just outwardly as Paul is, is sharing that he did, but also inwardly, what he accomplished, defeating Satan, sin, and death, what he freely gives us, which is grace and forgiveness and right standing before God himself. He's saying, this is all that matters to me now. All my, all my worth, all my hope rests in this Jesus alone. And now my one goal in this life is to know that Jesus. That's what he's communicating. This is all that my life revolves around. I don't, I, nothing is of worth to me anymore besides knowing this Jesus. Look at how Paul wants to know Christ here. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Okay, like we can get behind this, right? Death to life, miracles. Like, yes, let's go. I, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He's the power of the resurrection. It lives in me. I want to see this in this world. I want to see it lived out. I want to see and experience this power of the resurrection. But then he goes, the fellowship of his sufferings. And a lot of us, is going to cause us to pause and think, huh, not really what I signed up for, but can overlook that. Then it goes to the next one, conformed to his death. Now it feels like we're kind of pushing it a little bit, doesn't it? But here's what Paul is basically saying. I want all of him. There's no aspect of Jesus that I want to discard or set to the side. He's saying, I want all of it. Yeah, I want the demonstration of Christ's power in my life. I want to see, I want to see people converted. I want to see people healed. I want the gifts. If it's a specific language that I, it's just me and Jesus talking, I, I, sign me up for it. I want it. The power of the resurrection, yes. But I want to know Christ in his suffering. Paul's saying there's an aspect to knowing Jesus that being rejected as he was, that being beaten as he was, that being thrown into prison as Jesus was. There's a way that I can't know Jesus apart from knowing his sufferings. And so he says, sign me up. I want to know Jesus. And he said, even knowing Christ in his death, I'm willing to go there. There's no aspect of Jesus that's off limit to me. I want to know him, not just aspects of him, not just parts of him. I want all of him. I want to know him completely. This is my goal in life, the power of his resurrection, his sufferings, even enduring death because of Jesus. I'll take it. I sign up because of how surpassing of a value and a worth that Jesus is over everything that I once built my life on. That's what Paul's saying. Whatever it takes to know Christ more, he's saying, then count me in. It's like the person that's in a movie that's just in a desperate place where it's like, whatever it is, just take it. I will give it to you as long as I get to keep X. That's what Paul's basically kind of doing here. He's, it's like he has this exterior exoskeleton that he's just clawing off and he's like, here, you can take it. Like, if, if it's my physical appearance, he's like grabbing his hair, he's cutting it off, he's like, here, take it, I don't want it. If it's my badge for my work and shows my, has my ranks and my places, then take it, I don't want it anymore. If it's the money that's in my pockets, look, I'll, I'll turn it inside out, you can take it. I don't want it anymore, I just want Jesus. 
He's basically saying, look, if there's anything, absolutely anything in my life that's keeping me from knowing Jesus, then he's saying, look, God, this is my posture. It's open hands. Take it. I don't want it. All I want is Jesus. That's what Paul is trying to put before us here. Now, this is the part of the passage that's supposed to like get you super hype, right? Like, yes, I want to know Jesus. That's, I want to, yes, Paul, I'm with you. I want to go with you. This is what I want for my life. Count everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. But look, here's where I was at. And maybe you're sitting here in the same spot too. I'm reading this and I'm thinking like, dude, this is where I'm like, I'm, I'm going and I'm like turn, putting in my like notice and then like, Jesus, where are we going? You know what I'm saying? But here's where I was at. Instead of excitement, I was feeling challenge and conviction. I'm sitting here and I'm wrestling with, as I'm like wrestling with this text and wrestling with this passage that Paul's kind of placing his heart on a page before me, that this is a level of intimacy that I don't know if I've yet to experience with Jesus. The conviction that I felt like was just kind of stirring inside of me is that oftentimes, and maybe you can relate with this, is that Jesus is often a means to something else in my life. And look, that's another form of a diluted faith. We love the idea of Jesus, that he dies for us, that he does everything that we couldn't do for ourselves. He does it in our place, that he stands in our place, he dies in our place, that you and I don't have to, that we get right standing before God. But look, when it comes to other things like pleasure and satisfaction and purpose and meaning in this life, we often look to something else besides Jesus. We look to entertainment we look to our job, we look to our family, we look to so many other things. And what Paul is saying is like, I, I don't look to anything else but Jesus. I was at D group just a few weeks ago and I was just kind of sharing with them like some of my skepticism with prayer right now. Like some of the things that I feel like I've been praying for for a really long time and I haven't seen them come to fruition and just how it's kind of done this work on my heart and as I'm wrestling with this text and I'm thinking about all that Paul is stating here, all that I could really think about was not just the skepticism of my prayer anymore and the doubt of the power of prayer, but my, the, the, the requests that I'm bringing. That is not the, the skepticism of the prayer that I should be doubting. It's a skepticism of my request because look, oftentimes when I come and I bring to Jesus is something else that I'm looking for. I'm just looking to Jesus as a means to get the next thing. And so, look, I'm just sitting with this conviction as I'm looking over this. It's like, man, this is a level of intimacy that I don't have. I, I want it and I, I need God's help in order to get there. And look, you may be Maybe this resonates with you. 
right? Like maybe you're feeling like, yeah, Jesus has been been a means to something else in my life. I don't know if I've experienced this level of intimacy either. Here's some questions that I just felt like were stumbling on inside of me that I was just wrestling with. Here's some questions that maybe can help you kind of feel or sort through this as well, all right? So the first question, this is in response to kind of like what I was feeling with D group is like, what do I pray about? Like, what are the themes of my prayers? What is the thing that I'm constantly, regularly bringing to Jesus, asking Jesus for? And is it to know Jesus? Is it something that's moving me towards Jesus? Or is it Jesus as a means to something else? What are you praying for? Here's the second question. What do you worry about? What keeps you up at night? What's the thing that just sticks in your mind and you can't go to sleep because of this worry or this anxiety that you may have? The answer to these questions may be the Jesus as a means to whatever fills in that blank. And look, it's a deluded faith. Because it's stripping away the substance and the worth and the value of Jesus. Paul says, count any of these other things as a loss. Anything that fills in the blank to those questions is the thing that you're doing this to God. It's off limits. Instead, we need to be like Paul, the open hands. Take anything, anything that removes me from knowing Jesus. So look, Paul warns of this diluted faith, the Christianity and, but also of the Jesus as a means to something else. Jesus is worth far more, far more than anything that fills any of those blanks, which is why he moves on to the call. This is verses 12 through 14. Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, But I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching, striving forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize, look, promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Look, the last section, kind of heavy. This, this section, we should have like this corporate exhale of relief, <laughs> okay? Paul, like Paul hasn't reached the goal yet. He isn't perfect. He's not some superhuman Christian. He's saying like, I haven't reached my goal yet. It hasn't happened in my life yet. <sighs> Good, it's not just me. Now, it's not only a sense of relief, but it also has hope. There's so much hope here. Because look, Paul isn't the one that he's saying that took the initiative in this new goal that he has in his life. He's not working and straining and reaching towards these things because it's God's unwilling to give them to him. But look, Jesus is the one that took initiative because look at verse 12, at the end of verse 12. 
I'll make every effort to take hold of it. Look, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. See, Christ interrupted Paul's life as he was in this zealous mode where he's persecuting the church when his resume is what mattered most to his life, Jesus came and divinely interrupted Paul's life. He opened up Paul's eyes that Jesus was far surpassing anything in worth that anything that he built up his life around at that point in time and Jesus took hold of Paul's life and it was forever changed. He took this grip on Paul's life that changed his life for all the rest of eternity. And look, Jesus does the same thing to every single one of us in this room when we hear the goodness of the gospel and believe. In the same way that Jesus took hold of Paul's life is the same way that he takes hold of your life as well. You've been taken hold by the goodness of this gospel in this Jesus Christ. And in response, being taken hold of, Paul issues this call, this invitation to us with this goal that he bases his whole life around. I make every effort to take hold of it. I've forgotten what is behind. My gaze is set for what is ahead of me. I pursue what has been promised me in Christ. He's saying, look, come and join me. Come and join me in this call, this invitation that God has given me. He's taken hold of my life. Look, he takes hold of your life too when you respond to the goodness of Jesus. And as he's taken hold of our life, may this be the goal that we have. May this be the direction and the way that we move forward. Follow me as this is my new goal in life. This is what Paul is he's saying to us. He's saying, like, lay aside the deluded faith. Lay aside the Christianity and. Lay aside the Jesus as a means to something else and take up the full meal of Jesus. So look, I, this is probably about four years ago. There was a men's retreat that we went and we did this camping trip in Indiana, all right? And so we're sitting around this campfire at night. And as we're around this campfire, have anybody like been, like, anybody like one of those like serious campers and you have like the provision meals? You know what I'm talking about? Those like highly saturated, highly, like so somebody pulls out one of these meals around the, the fire. And it's like, okay. We get it. You're serious about camping, all right? This is like a one-night thing, and then we're going back home. Like, you don't need this, but cool to you. And so we're sitting around, and so one of the dads brings their high school son, and so he, this guy gives the high schooler, like, a, one of these crackers. It's like, like that's one of the really, uh, what, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It's, like, highly saturated. And so he's like, hey, I, I'll, I'll bet you that you can't eat this in, like, two minutes. And so the high schooler's like, deal. Because he's like, I got an endless stomach, right? And so he throws this cracker into his mouth and he's like chewing and he like can't swallow. Because <laughs> it's just so dense, right? Like it's so dense. And so he can't get it down. And so after the two minute thing is over, he's like, all right, I'm going to teach you how you actually eat these meals. And it's so dense. It's so heavy. It's so rich that he's like, you have to take a small bite. You have to eat on it for a little while and then swallow. And this meal is to take a really long time. It takes a really long time because it's so saturated. It's so full. It's so dense. It's so heavy. It's so rich. Look, this is what Paul is inviting us to. He's saying, get rid of the diluted faith. The, get rid of the resumes. Get rid of the Christianity and 
Get rid of the Jesus as a means to something else because there is a full, dense, rich, heavy meal that you find in Jesus. And so, like, put aside the deluded faith. Take up this call with me. Take up this invitation to eat of Jesus, this rich, heavy meal that's not just something that you can throw in your mouth and just dissolve in two minutes. I'm talking about this rich meal that lasts not just for the next year, not just for the next decade, not just for the next century. Like this meal is going to last for all of eternity. It's the hope of the resurrection that we get to be made a whole, that we get to be with Jesus and he never will leave us. We get to be with him physically present for all eternity. This is the meal that he's inviting you to come and take and receive. And he's saying, look, your deluded faith pales in comparison to this rich, heavy, dense meal. So take up the call. Take up the invitation. Listen to Paul's warning. Look out for the Christianity and lay aside the resume. Wrestle with Paul's goal. What is Jesus a means to in your life? And lead, let it lead you to open hands and take up Paul's call, his invitation to set aside the diluted stuff for the full, rich, dense meal. Forget what is behind you and then reach for what is ahead, the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray.